Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever's coming next. Last time we talked about Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, goes by any of those names. We talked about what it is, we talked about what it does. Today we're going to talk about how do you prepare yourself to receive all of its benefits. Remember that Holy Communion is like baptism in at least three ways. That Holy Communion and baptism have these three things in common. They were both started by Jesus while Jesus was here on earth during his earthly ministry. Jesus gave his disciples the command to go baptize. Um, he also gave his disciples the command to receive the Lord's Supper often after Jesus offered it to them for the very first time on the day before Jesus died. So it was started by Jesus. Number two, they're both things that, that connect God's word with something visible, something tangible, something you can, something you can touch or sense in, um, you know, in very, in very special ways. Water, we can, we can feel. Bread and wine, we can, we can taste and we can feel. And, and those normal things that we use every day, when connected with God's word, they give special blessings according to the promises that are contained in the Bible. And the blessings... Baptism and communion, they have these blessings in common. They offer the forgiveness of sins and therefore a new spiritual life, new spiritual identity even, and then eternal salvation. If your sins are forgiven, there's nothing keeping you out of heaven. And so these are, these are some of the means of grace. Remember the means of grace? We defined that previously, a Bible buzzword, the, the ways by which the Holy Spirit applies God's universal grace to our individual hearts. Do you know how many means of grace there are? From what the Bible teaches, there are three. Holy Communion, Baptism, and the Word of God, the Bible itself. Those three means of grace. So those are the things that Baptism and Communion have in common. The original means of grace started by Jesus connects God's Word with something visible and offers forgiveness of sins, new life, and salvation. But they also have some differences. Remember that Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize all nations, and there were no restrictions. There were no age restrictions. There were no gender restrictions. There were no knowledge requirements. There was nothing. Just go and baptize all nations. The Bible also never talks about getting baptized more than once. So baptism is, you know, once for all sins. We never have an example in the Bible of somebody getting baptized twice. In fact, it's just only ever talked about in the Bible as people getting baptized just once. Forgiveness of sins for all the sins you have ever committed and will ever commit. However, communion is different in these two ways. Jesus told his disciples to celebrate communion often, and he did not open up the invitation for communion to every single person. In fact, Scripture gives some very specific instructions as to who should and who should not receive communion. We saw that in our previous lesson when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul, in three verses, Give us three things that we ought to consider when we think about, well, who should be receiving communion and how do we best receive communion ourselves? So we'll just go verse by verse in chapter 11, starting at verse 27. In verse 27, the Apostle Paul said, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So there's a worthy way and there's an unworthy way to receive the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, in that sense, is kind of like medicine. If you go into your doctor because you're sick, 
And your doctor says, after evaluating you, well, okay, well, I have the solution. Here's a bottle of pills, and I want you to take two pills every day for the next 30 days. So there are 60 pills in the container, two pills a day every day for the next 30 days. And so you go home, and the next day when you're supposed to start with your pills, you get out the container of pills, and you read the instructions, okay, two every day for the next, for each of the next 30 days. But you start thinking to yourself, you know what? I'm feeling especially ill today. And instead of taking two each day for the next 30 days, I'll just get it done with all today. And I'll take all 60 pills in one sitting. I think you know what would happen. That medicine that was intended to help you would harm you because you received it improperly. You didn't follow the instructions. The same is true with Holy Communion, this Holy Communion, this medicine for the soul, medicine for the deepest and most broken parts of our hearts. It's wonderful medicine. But the Bible tells us there is an, a way that we can receive it in an unworthy way. And so what is that? Go to the next verse, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul goes on to say, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so you need to examine yourself. And what does that mean? Does that mean you need to make sure before you go to church, you look in the mirror, make sure your hair is styled up and your teeth are brushed and, and everything everything looks really good. You look nice and presentable. <laughs> no, he's, um, he's encouraging us to examine our hearts. If you're going to go and receive the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to acknowledge something about yourself. You need to acknowledge that you have sins that need forgiving. If you're holding on to a sin and you just think, you know what, I'm going to keep doing this and I don't care, then you should not receive the Lord's Supper because then you're not really sorry for your sins. But when you are, receive the Lord's Supper. You know, the, the Lord's Supper isn't like something that you work your way up to as a Christian. Or it's like, well, you, you get to be such a spiritually mature Christian in your faith and then you are worthy of receiving the Lord's Supper. No, the Lord's Supper is for those who are most broken and who know they are most broken. Jesus receives us at our worst. But we must acknowledge that we are at the worst, that we are the worst. And then he gives us the best of his forgiveness and love. So we need to examine ourselves, examine our hearts. And then finally, in verse 29 of chapter 11 there, he says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And we talked about this last time, the importance of recognizing what it is that we receive. Um... We talked last time about three different ways that Christian churches overall teach what it is that a person receives in the Lord's Supper. And it is important. The differences are important because God wants to speak definitively on things and God does speak definitively on things. And where God speaks definitively, in order to honor God and honor God's word, then we must confess definitively just as God does on all of these different topics. It's important to recognize what we are receiving because the Lord's word is at stake. The Lord's word is at stake. So I want you to think about this. Because there are different Christian churches that teach different things about communion, um, there are a number of different applications that we might make as to what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do when you're in those different churches. But let's start here. Let's say you are at a church that teaches real presence, just like Jesus did, just like the Bible does. When you receive, uh, when you receive the Lord's Supper, you are receiving four things: the bread and the wine, Jesus' body, and Jesus' blood. So, at a church that teaches the the real presence, 
Would you agree or disagree with this? That everyone who goes to the Lord's Supper receives Jesus' body and blood. Like even if they don't believe in the real presence, even if they believe something entirely different, or if they don't believe anything at all about the Lord's Supper, would you agree or disagree that everyone who goes to receive the Lord's Supper receives Jesus' actual body and blood? Yeah. It's just that some receive it in a way that benefits their faith and others in a way that, that harms them. But everyone does. That's what the Apostle Paul meant in that verse. Some other practical applications. Let's imagine that you are visiting a church for the first time and they're going to serve communion. Should you receive communion in a church that you're visiting for the first time? Let's assume that you're at this church visiting for the first time and you don't know what they teach about communion. You don't know if they teach real presence or transubstantiation or representation. You don't know, but everybody's going up and, and now it comes your turn. Do you, get, do you get up and do you go to the front? which often happens in church or sometimes you just sit in the pew. And so do you receive the elements and do you receive the Lord's Supper? I would say that if you don't know what they teach about communion, at the very least, I would wait <laughs> to find that out. Because if everyone else there knows that the church teaches representation, for example, which the Bible does not teach, and if you receive it along with everyone, then you will easily be seen as somebody who supports that wrong teaching. And so out of love for God and out of love for God's word and wanting to help others grow in their knowledge of God's word. In that case, I think it would be okay to wait. <laughs> okay to wait until you've had an opportunity to learn, to ask, to discuss, to go back to scripture, to talk, and to move forward. And if it gets to the point where it's just obvious you're not on the same page with what communion is, then it's probably not the church where you should be receiving the Lord's Supper. Well, how about this? Well, what if you're the pastor of the church? Should you let anybody come up for communion? We pastors, we do have to think about these things. <laughs> a couple of things you might want to keep in mind. Um, as pastors, we do have a responsibility to do all that we can to clearly let people know what our church teaches about everything, especially if we're going to offer something publicly, publicly, in a public way like that. And so in whatever way we can, we have a responsibility to let people know what we teach about communion, or at least make that easily, easily accessible, and to let people know that this is a big deal, that this is, that this is on our minds. We also, with our own members, we have a responsibility to instruct our own members in these things before before we would give it to them because we don't want to harm our own members. We want them to receive the Lord's Supper in a very worthy way, in a way that gives all the greatest benefits. And these are really, really heavy truths. You know, to, and so to be sure that we are instructing at an age where we think somebody's intellect is working together well with their faith. And there's no perfect age for that. So like, well, once you get to be 11 years old, then it just, you know, then it just clicks just like that. It varies for each person, but at least in the churches where I've taught and the churches that I've been connected with, we start around the fourth or fifth grade year to instruct, and we instruct on these things for a couple of years to give the truths time to set in so that by the time they reach late middle school or early high school, we know that we've instructed well enough that they can make a confession on, on what they believe. And then finally, remember that a person needs to be sorry for their sins in order to receive communion in a, in a worthy way. And while we can't look into people's hearts and know what's in there, there can be cases, and there have been cases, where a pastor will know that, that a member is continuing to commit a sin that they know the church recognizes as a sin. 
and they know that the Bible teaches is a sin, and they don't care. And so in a case like that, a pastor is sometimes in a hard position with, uh, if that person comes up to communion, wants to receive the forgiveness of sins for sins that he really doesn't care all that much about or care that he's committing. It can be a tricky kind of thing, but it's an important kind of thing because we, of course, we want everyone who receives the Lord's Supper to receive all the benefits and not to, uh, not to receive it in, in an unworthy manner. Also, go back for a moment to the example of taking communion in a church that, that teaches something incorrect about communion. You know, you can apply the same principle to other doctrines as well. You know, imagine I, as a pastor, went to a church that, that everyone knew, there knew that that church teaches that Jesus is not God, that he was never even divine, that he's just a nice guy who taught good things. And so if I participate in the worship life of that church in a way that seems to indicate that I am standing shoulder to shoulder with, um, with all, of these, all of these other people in the church who, who believe this very wrong thing about Jesus, then I might easily give the impression that I'm okay with that. You might not automatically give that impression, but boy, I think it's likely that you would. And we have to be really careful about that because when it comes to doctrine, the only expectation that the Bible ever lays out is that Christians be united on everything. And you might think, well, that's impossible. But remember one of the passages we talked about last time, from Luke chapter 1, where the angel told Mary, nothing's impossible with God. And Jesus himself even prayed in John chapter 17, he prayed that, that his church would be perfectly united. He said that as the goal. He said this, he said, as he's praying, he said, my prayer is not for just the disciples here, as he's praying to his Father in heaven. He said, I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their message, so Jesus is praying about us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Notice how often Jesus refers to unity there. One, that they may be one, that that is the goal, to be one in everything. Complete unity in everything that we believe, in everything that we teach. That's the goal that Jesus sets out. It's a difficult goal to achieve, but it's still the goal. And it's not impossible. Not when God is at work. And then, when there is complete unity, did you notice that? After there's complete unity, then, and this is before Judgment Day, before Jesus comes back, then the world will know. Then the world will know about God's love for them. Unity, then God's great work. And we see what that looked like in the early church. We've referred to this passage before in previous lessons from Acts chapter 2, a snapshot of what the early church looked like, where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
And so you see unity around the word of God, devoted to the apostles' teachings. They had everything in common, devoted to the apostles' teachings, unity, breaking bread in their homes, which may be referring to receiving communion together. And then what was the result? A lot of personal joy. They were in awe, glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people, personal joy, and a powerful impact on the world. Personal joy, powerful impact on the world. And what did that? Well, God did, of course. But in particular, it was God working through his means of grace. Powerful gifts to his church to make a powerful impact on this world.